Saturday, 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 we are having a blowout sale at Tina's Range Gear. Get 69% off this Saturday on tent poles and all items needed to create a sawed-off shotgun. You know, for protection against psychopathic killers. No shirt, just shoes. No shoes, just shirt. No problem. We got you covered with a wide selection of Western wear and Larry Man size 11s. Tina's Range Gear is a proud sponsor of the Whiskey Flick Podcast. No, background checks are not required on all firearms. All tent poles come with or without tent. If today's whiskey flick ain't a hell of a mess, it'll do till the mess gets here. Grab a glass and saddle up for No Country for Old Men. Welcome back to Whiskey Flick. I am your host, Terrence Dunn, ready to enjoy a tasty beverage while we, as always, revisit some of our favorite movies, music, and more. With me, as always, this week is my co-host, Mr. Matt Graham. Matt, what's new with you? Uh, What's new with me? I am just uh, getting ready for spring season, right? The weather's been warm. It's supposed to get cold again, which I'm cool with. I love cold weather. Uh, I'm with you, man. I'm I'm really excited about, you know, spring obviously leads to summer. We get a little cold weather before that, of course. But uh, I'm excited for all the things that, you know, this month of March is going to bring our way, as it always does. All right. So what is the most that you ever lost on a coin toss? Because we are about to kick off our exploration of the darkest corners of West Texas. Man, this is a hard 90 degree turn from the first two movies that we've done on this show uh, as we dive into to the grim and gritty thriller, uh, The Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men. Before we break down No Country for Old Men, we got to talk about the beverages that are going to get us through this journey to Texas. So Matt, what, what is your drink of choice as we head to the Lone Star State? Got about three fingers of Jim Beam, a few ice cubes, and that's it. Keeping it simple. That's what I'm drinking. What about you, Terrence Dunn? What are you sipping on? spilled a little bit on myself um i am actually sipping heaven hill uh on ice as well so a return to heaven hill shout out again dave for the recommendation really good i figured a nice stiff well-aged whiskey would make a lot of sense to go with this movie that deals in age and aging out of things what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss sir the most you ever lost on a coin toss i don't know i couldn't say Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. 
So Matt, let's dive into this week's whiskey flick. And before we get into the details around No Country for Old Men, this is obviously our first time talking about a film by the Coen brothers, but I can assure you, listener, it will not be the last. So it made sense with this being our first time talking about a Coen brothers film to kind of talk about these filmmakers that are going to be, you know, revisiting us a few times. So the Coen brothers did get their start in genre movies. Uh, they were really often associated with Sam Raimi early on in their career. Joel was actually an assistant to the editor on Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead back in the early 80s. So uh, got their start in genre pictures and they continued to work with Sam Raimi uh, as Joel and Ethan co-wrote Crime Wave with Raimi, which uh, Raimi then directed. And this idea of frequent collaborators is something that kind of runs throughout the Coen brothers' career. They've collaborated often with Roger Deakins, their cinematographer earlier in their career, Barry Sonnenfeld, who's probably now known more days as a director, was their cinematographer on their earliest movies, Jess Conjur, who's their art director on this film included. And of course, their cast. There's a ton of recurring cast members, including Francis McDormand, uh, Steve Buscemi, John Goodman, Stephen Root, John Turturro, Bruce Campbell, uh, George Clooney. Some of those names appear in this movie, Stephen Root in particular. They've accumulated across their career 14 Academy Award nominations, including four wins, one for Fargo for original screenplay, and the other three all for No Country for Old Men. Uh, that includes adapted screenplay, best director, and best picture. And the thing they're probably most known for throughout all the movies in their career, whether you're talking about their thrillers, whether you're talking about their dramas, whether you're talking about their comedies, they love to play with genre, right? They love to subvert their genre. They love to parody their genre. And I think that's something that we do see on display here. They also love to flirt with stories on kind of the darkest edges of humanity. So a lot of very dark stories, even in their comedic films, they tend to have stories with a bit more of a darker bent and a little bit more of a, a sharper and uh, almost like sardonic edge to their humor. Matt, any kind of like big picture thoughts on the Coens? How do you feel about the Coens kind of as a filmmaking entity? Love them. No Country for Old Men is my favorite movie, my favorite Coen Brothers movie. However, there hasn't been a Coen Brothers movie that I've seen that I hail Caesar is a little rough for me. Ballad of Buster Scruggs had moments where I'm like, okay, this is entertaining, but as a whole was not a great film. Almost every other movie I've seen by them I've been immensely entertained with or straight up loved. I love The Big Lebowski. I, I love it when directors use the same people because then you know what you're going to get from a visual standpoint. And when you are, you know, whether you're the Coen brothers or, you know, you're Scorsese in a lot of aspects, you, you find the people that help you make the movies the way you want to make them. So no matter what the story is, you know that there are certain, there's some things that you can count on. You can almost guarantee with any of their movies, that you're going to see a beautifully shot movie. Shout out Deacons. Uh, he, obviously, he's done some other movies that are very enjoyable. It's like, how do you turn West Texas into one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen? You let Deacons shoot it. That's how you do it. Uh, so yeah, no, love Coen Brothers. Super excited to talk about this film. Let's talk about some key facts as it relates to No Country for Old Men to get us started before we dive into the details on this flick. Uh, so first of all, the flick itself, right? It's based on the book No Country for Old Men written by Cormac McCarthy. Uh, have you read the book, Matt? I have not. Christine was asking me, like, why haven't you read this book? This seems like a book you would want to read. And I informed her that I have not read a book that I didn't have to read for school since college? I listened to Matthew McConaughey's book because our good friend Nate Moliné uh, bought it for me and sent it to me, and I did enjoy it. I can read. Uh, I have a pretty good grasp of the English language as a whole, except for some of the words that have been on Wordle lately. But in general, I'm good with the English language, so I can read. I'm just not a big reader. I do think I will read this book because I love the movie so much it would be kind of criminal for me not to read where it came from. 
well, I'm happy to loan you my copy. So I will say that uh, this is actually a really faithful adaptation. It's pretty close to the book, especially in terms of the tone. I think the biggest difference between the book and the movie is the fact that uh, it gives a lot of the other characters more love. The book itself is really anchored by Sheriff Bell, who's played by Tommy Lee Jones in the film. I like the fact that in this movie, we get scenes that don't necessarily involve Sheriff Bell. And as a result, we get to know more about Llewellyn Moss. We get to know more about Carson Wells. We get to know more about Anton Chigurh in the process. So I think that's kind of a cool benefit. Uh, now, while the movie's based on a book, the title itself actually comes from a Yeats poem, Sailing to Byzantium. The key line that it's taken from uh, is the first two lines of the first stanza. That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. Matt, any thoughts on the title? Uh, it's going to be a word that I use a lot to describe this film, and I'll describe that. Beautiful. I definitely see kind of the overlap. The rest of the poem, I don't know, really feeds that much into it, but those two lines in particular, you know, really what we see throughout the film, this kind of idea of, of aging out of a world that is too young, too dangerous, too different from, you know, what the, the old men were used to. And as a result, there, there's no place for them uh, in this new world, right? Uh, as far as the film itself, it made $172 million at the box office, not a ton of money, but pretty good overall for a, you know, for a sort of Oscar prestige picture. It was profitable. It made a, uh, uh, you know, 172 million on a 25 million dollar budget. Up until True Grit, it was the uh, highest grossing Coen Brothers film. This movie did have obviously a lot to do at awards season. It premiered at the 2007 Cannes Film Festival. It went on to win 76 awards from 109 nominations, including four Oscars on eight nominations. We already mentioned three of them earlier: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, but also, of course, Javier Bardem uh, won Best Supporting Actor for his ridiculously amazing portrayal of Anton Chigurh, one of the one of the greatest supporting in quotes uh, acting performances every actor in this movie is a supporting actor it's an ensemble movie there's no main guy you could say the main guy is Llewellyn Moss or Tommy Lee Jones because they are either the narrator or they they are the catalyst for almost all of the conflict that takes place that being said they no one really gets more screen time than any other character at least out of those three main ones they get very little screen time to get they get no screen time together like you they almost don't intersect with each other much they're chasing each other or they're running from each other or they're doing some combination of the two even in those scenes that they're technically together you don't see them on screen at the same time for nope. the most part it's nope. it's it's very interesting how isolated everybody is in this movie intentional it, it's definitely giving into this whole credence that we're in west texas this is rural this is desolate this is everything spatial everything in this movie is suffocatingly empty including uh, the moral compass of some of the characters is <laughs> suffocatingly empty. So the only other thing I had on the film that I just thought was like a, a fun story was, because I, I distinctly remember this when the movie came out uh, in 07, this movie, No Country for Old Men, and the Paul Thomas Anderson film, There Will Be Blood. And this is always the thing Hollywood does. They were awards rivals during the award season. Like, who's going to take this one? Who's going to take, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, like that's a thing filmmakers think about, like pitting their movies against each other. But I thought it was interesting more so because both movies actually filmed in the same part of Texas. The cast and the crew regularly ran into each other <laughs> because they were filming in the same part of state, so much so that if you know the movie, There Will Be Blood, there's obviously a very famous like pyrotechnic sequence that involves the oil derrick spilling fire out into the sky and billowing all the smoke. Apparently that effect was so profound that on that same day, No Country for Old Men was shooting wide angle shots and you could see the smoke on the horizon. It was so bad. Um, they had to shut down production for a day. <laughs> there's room that Daniel did, there was times in No Country for Old Men where someone would ride a bike through set 
and disrupt filming of No Country for Old Men, and that was none other than Daniel Day-Lewis on a bike. Unconfirmed reports. <laughs> it's a rumor. Probably untrue. I want to believe that it is. <laughs> Just to further on that rival, both amazing movies, both considered by many in the top 10 of the better pictures made in the last 20 years. Uh, but yes, this is by far at 109 nominations and 76 awards. Matt, this is the most acclaimed movie that we have done on this show. And I, I can't think of the award status of the rest of the movies on our list, but it's probably going to be one of the more acclaimed movies that we do. We're classing up the joint. I should have worn a tux for this episode. Or Lisa Texas Bowtie. <laughs> Last but not least, let's talk a little bit about who worked on this movie. So first of all, the crew, we already talked about Joel and Ethan Cohen. They're amazing directors, writers, producers uh, on this film. Uh, they also edited the film under their pseudonym that they used to edit all of their films, Roderick Janes. Roger Deakins was the cinematographer. Um, he is obviously, as we mentioned, cinematographer to the stars. He's done a total of 12 movies with the Coens, starting with Barton Fink. He also did uh, a couple of uh, Matt and my favorite films with Sam Mendes, including Skyfall and the ridiculously gorgeous 1917. Outside of No Country for All Men, 1917 it might be the next, if not more, beautifully shot movies I've ever seen. And the fact that 1917 is one continuous go, because normally in film school, they make, like I watched a couple films that were one take movies and you watch them because they're one take movies and they're fucking terrible. They're not good. Like there's a reason why most movies have more than one take. Yeah, and it's it's impressive that, uh, and we know obviously this isn't a 1917 podcast, but you're impressed when a movie does like a five minute opening scene that's all in one take. A whole fucking movie that looks like it's one take. Uh, and then of course you had Carter Burwell on music. And then as we mentioned, Skip Lee say on sound editing. Uh, and sound plays an interesting role in this movie as we'll talk about in a moment. You have the incredible cast. We already shouted out Tommy Lee Jones as Sheriff Bell. We've also got Josh Brolin who played Llewellyn Moss. Uh, interestingly enough, he was not the original person cast to play Llewellyn Moss, the role was actually offered to Heath Ledger. I think that Llewellyn Moss's character has to have this sense of like bumbling American like cockiness and ignorance that Brolin does such a good job of executing that I I, I think Ledger comes across I don't want to say more educated, but like comes off a little bit more sophisticated. I don't think that works for his character. Like Llewellyn Moss at a base level is a dude that has a job who goes hunting on weekends and it was in Vietnam and that's what he is. And he thinks he's top shit because he's always been top shit and he's good with the gun and that is what it is. And he's not top shit, clearly. Um, but yeah, I, I think Brolin, I think Brolin is the right move. The portrayal that Brolin gives, I think is very important to the character. So Josh Brolin, I also thought this was kind of an interesting fact. Uh, his screen test was directed by Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, which, man, if you want to have some success with a screen test, um, get those guys to direct it. Yeah, no shit. Because <laughs> sometimes it's about who you know. <laughs> but he did well, so I'm good with it. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like Josh Brolin was some unknown. Obviously, he was in a Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino movie. But, like, I mean, what kind of credibility to get you in the door when a director's not a fan, right? Uh, shouting out the rest of the cast, you know, we already shouted out the incredible Javier Bardem as Anton Schur. We're going to be talking about him a lot throughout the course of this podcast. Uh, we talked about Tommy Lee Jones as Sheriff Bell. We've got Kelly McDonald as Carla Jean Moss. We've got Woody Harrelson as Carson Wells, the um, uh, hired gun who's you know brought in afterwards to try to corral Anton Chigurh. And, and then we also had, uh, we got a shout out Deputy Wendell played by Garrett Dillahunt, who is kind of the uh, dark comedic foil for you know some of Sheriff Bell's gallows humor throughout the course of the movie. Well, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. 
So let's get into it. First sight. So Matt, this was obviously a pick on your list. It is one of, if not your all time favorite movie. Talk to us about it, man. What's, what, what, what do you love about this movie? What is your take? I saw it three times in theaters with three different people. I wanted to like shout it from the rooftops because I, I watched it for the first time, I believe with my roommate. And at the time I was a film major in college. So obviously I was geeking out about some of the things that I saw in this movie. And on a, on a grand scale, the movie opens and two words come to mind. And then those two, two words are prevalent throughout the whole movie if you're going to describe it. And it is beautiful and brutal. This wide open shot of West Texas countryside with Tommy Lee Jones narrating hot take. Tommy Lee Jones narrating in this movie is better than any narration that uh, Morgan Freeman's ever done. <laughs> and they're excerpts from the book. So shout out to the author of the book because they're so well written and worded. There's this boy I sent to the electric chair at Huntsville here a while back. My arrest and my testimony. He killed a 14 year old girl. Paper said it was a crime of passion, but he told me there wasn't any passion to it. Told me that he'd been planning to kill somebody for about as long as he could remember. Said if they turned him out, he'd do it again. Said he knew he was going to hell. Be there in about 15 minutes. I don't know what to make of that. Oof, just like, and I was also, at the time, I had written some, I still continued to enjoy writing, I'd, I'd written some deaf poetry, so like, all my senses are tingling with all of this like, word porn and this like, visually beautiful landscape. And then you have Anton Chigurh with handcuffs choking out a police officer or a sheriff or whatever he is on a floor, and the, and the detail of the boot marks scraping against this perfectly just it's just direction and cinematographer like masturbation honestly it's just flexing all over the screen i was i was hooked right from that and then the rest of the movie is filled with these incredible characters and these incredible performances that don't there's no climax in the movie um there's but there's a lot of incredible dialogue incredible acting some very brutal violent moments it's just this modern western that is spectacularly shot spectacularly directed and so i wanted people to see it so i saw it three times in theaters three different people and loved every minute of it that's awesome. I know I saw it twice in theaters. It was incredibly enjoyable. It just a, a to your point, a, a gorgeous looking movie. Um, it never really occurred to me to think about that. And obviously we're going to talk about the ending of the movie here in a little bit, but you characterize it as no climax. I think that there's a couple of climaxes, but they're not like climaxes in like the big bombastic cinematic sense. There are clear moments where these parts of the story end. It's almost like each character has their own climax. But there are these like final moments that are subtle and quiet um, and and definitely not what you would expect to be in a big kind of like thriller type movie. And, and the reason why I kind of and I still kind of like gravitate towards a like lack of I mean, obviously, there's you know, there's scenes that are climactic in the sense that they're like, oh, shit, that just happened. But like from a classic Hollywood climax of a movie wrapped up at two of the bigger things that were waiting to happen in the movie. We find out after they've already happened, or we come to them. We don't see Llewellyn Moss get killed. We don't see his body. He's in a motel, another motel. Shout out motel. Shout out West Texas motel. <laughs> There's a lot of them. A lot of them in this movie. <laughs> they are a big part. They're a big part of this movie. Um, and I believe it's the Desert Sands Motel. He is murdered by men of Mexico, which we didn't really see as a threat. Very anticlimactic that we don't see him killed. All we see is a couple of the guys that murdered him fleeing in a vehicle as Tommy Lee Jones gets on scene. 
Anton Shiger gets the money. There's up for debate, but it's implied with the dime on the bed, he gets the money. We don't see him get the money. We get what we think is a climactic scene, and it's crazy. I still like watched it on the rewatch. It's still Anton Shiger looking out a crack in a door, waiting to assumingly kill Tommy Lee Jones. Doesn't, because he's not in the room when Tommy Lee Jones comes in that room. He does not have any type of encounter with Tommy Lee Jones, which I'm glad because it would not have gone well for Tommy Lee Jones. And the movie just kind of fades. And then the very final scene of the movie is very climactic in a sense, but then is dissipated by, hey kid, let me buy your shirt. Look at that fucking bone. Great line read from that kid. Puts his arm in a sling and he walks off, assumingly escapes capture once again. It's definitely unique in that sense. And we're definitely not done talking about the ending. I'll, I'll kind of kill two birds with one stone here and talk about not only my first impression, like my first impressions upon revisiting it was I too was reminded of just like how beautiful and cinematic this movie is. Um, and especially in throughout that entire monologue, right? You're getting these uh, gorgeous shots of, you know, the sun is rising over the West Texas, you know, hills and prairie. It's these big expansive, like kind of classic Panavision slash Technicolor. I mean, like a very old school kind of, filmmaking going on here and it immediately calls to mind westerns and i know that like the coens have said in interviews that they you know this is a western but it also like is definitely not a western certainly shot like one you can see uh sam peckinpah's fingerprints throughout this film in terms of like the overall look and feel and that was i think one of the things that really struck me i i remember thinking how bleak this movie is and the movie is bleak right we'll talk about that when we get to the themes here in a second but i didn't realize how much of the coens standard identity is still here. It just kind of gets buried a little bit under all of that kind of bleak storytelling because you've still got a very dark sense of humor. And then the other big thing that they're known for, as we mentioned, is playing with genre, which I never really associated with this movie. But then you're watching it and throughout they're totally subverting genre, right? They're subverting your takes on the Western, right? Because, you know, the Western is known for these classical vistas and the sort of like standard morality play of, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys and, and that kind of classic Western play. And that's definitely fucked with in this movie. You get some awesome cinematic homages throughout. Like obviously Peckinpah is probably the biggest one just because that immediately was what I thought of with all of the grand vistas of the Western landscape. But I mean, there's a ton of Hitchcock references in this movie that I had forgotten about. There's that scene where Woody Harrelson as Carson Wells, he's walking up the stairs back to his hotel room and Javier Bardem appears behind him. And it's not a verbatim because the actual scene in Psycho is a little bit different, but the angle of the way it's shot, it's just like when the investigator in Psycho is walking up the stairs. And I was like, fuck, that is right out of Hitchcock. All of that brought me to my first question for you before we get into the down and dirty here, which is how would you classify this movie? How do you box this movie in? Yeah, I don't know if it's boxable. And I, I spent enough time at retail and shipping and up and warehouse operations. I know my way around a box. I know how to box this. <laughs> don't know that I can quite box this. I would say it is just a really, I would just have to fill half the box with Neo Western, half the box with film noir, and just let that kind of be how I ship it out. Um, I will real quick make the comment on humor. How well humor is used throughout the movie to segment certain parts of the movie while also tying in separating storylines. Two of the big ones for me is when Llewellyn's crossing the border into Mexico and he has a fu somewhat funny encounter with three drunk college students from, from Temple University. I think he's like, he's like, hey, let me get your, 
can I get your shirt and that beer? And they're like charging him money. And he's basically on a very base level, right? Fucked up, injured, asking for something to help him get across the border so he can get to a hospital. To the very end of the movie, where Javier Bardem is hit by a car, approached by two kids on bikes, pays the kid for, literally they both pay someone for his shirt. It's funny, both instances when they're in the interaction, but like it ties them together so they're not that different. So I love that one. And then you have like all of the buddy cop humor that goes in between Delahunt and Tommy Lee Jones. So subtle and so funny, like oh, was it the DEA and the FBI are out there. Any more bodies accumulate? I reckon not. Well, I don't need to go. <laughs> <laughs> Just all of that stuff's funny. I didn't think a car would burn like that. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Uh, the uh, the girl who's the manager of the trailer park and the woman who's the manager of the motel, the same vibe. Like, we can't give out no information on our residents. But then, like, in your face humor, like, Llewellyn's bleeding out on the steps of what looks like a church in Mexico. And there's these four mariachi men just playing loud, like, straight out of a Quentin Tarantino movie music right in their faces, right in his face, like what you would assume would happen to any white man that went to Mexico. He does his broken Texas Spanish to say medical, or medico, I think he's what he says. And he's bleeding, and they're like, holy fuck, and they just stop playing immediately. He slides open his jacket, and the wound, like, reveals itself, and they're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he hands them a hundred dollar bill yep. that looks like it's been washed in blood. Yes. Uh, but it's as you as you alluded to, this is a and they stayed really true to the the book, which I think was very important to them, and that's why it doesn't have the normal Cohen brother stank on it. But they definitely you see in like especially with that the humor and the parallels between humor and different scenes where you get that Cohen brothers love. So yeah, I think it's a neo western. I think it's a film noir. I think it, I think it hits both boxes very 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 well. I can't wait to talk about music in this movie or lack thereof because there is none and it's fucking awesome. We're definitely going to talk about that here next. I So I agree with you. Um, I, I definitely, it, it's it's a tough movie to like kind of box in, right? I think neo-Western is, it probably qualifies because obviously it's not a classical Western, right? Totally film noir element. I think that the violent in the film, especially in the first half of the film, definitely flirts with horror. And to your point, that opening kill scene, kill scenes with uh, Anton Chigurh and the, the deputy in the station. I mean, it's gross. He's using the handcuffs to like choke him out and it slices open his throat and there's blood going everywhere and there's the you know rubber skid marks from his boots on the on the floor i mean we are talking about a really graphically violent movie that i do think kind of brings it into the realm of horror to a certain extent and i think for a, a reason and we'll, we'll talk a little more about the violence here in a second just how dangerous is he compared to what the bubonic plague so so talk to me about your takes on the sound and the music it's it's noteworthy for sure there's no music it's in the not. entire movie so many classic thrillers psycho birds some of the hitchcockian stuff um jaws sound and music are often used carelessly sometimes used really well sometimes used expertly i mean we touched about it in our last podcast uh, back to the future the opening just ticking clocks great use of sound but there's a lot of music involved in the movie and there's an absence of music that just what do, what do we say? Deafening silence, deafening emptiness, just this- Suffocating. Suffocating, exactly, correct. They build an enormous amount of tension throughout this movie. You can hear a pin drop, like the scene with uh, where he kills the three cartel members in a hotel room to where he's on the second story of the hotel, the hotel Eagle, I think is what it's called, and he shoots the door lock in his chest. Exquisitely 
like executed in how subtle or not as like I said, there's no music. There's no music tension in this entire movie. All of the tension is derived from little sounds here and there or just the story in general and the acting performances. Chef's Kiss directing. It, it's, it plays right into how the Coens love to subvert genre, right? Because you're right. Like Hollywood is known for playing audiences like a fiddle. If, you, if it's a time to laugh, you get that little sting in the soundtrack, right? If it's a time to be suspenseful, it's, oh, they're building and it's getting climactic. The sound in a film and specifically the score of a film has always told the audience how to think, how to feel, what's coming, what to get ready for, right? And all of that is 100% absent in this suspense thriller, it completely upends that kind of traditional Hollywood model. And that was the point. I actually found an interview with the sound editor of the film where he talked about how he and the Coens, their objective was to get rid of the safety net that lets the audience feel like they know what's about to happen, which in turn makes the movie more suspenseful. You don't know when somebody's going to show up. You don't know when something crazy is going to pop out at you because the score is not guiding you. What I immediately thought of as I was reading this interview was I started thinking about, yeah, have you been to like uh like not scary farm or halloween heart like those yes. like haunted house theme park yeah. things right you know when you go to those and you look at the map right and you see the scare zones and the not scare zone so i know if i go to the scare zone i'm gonna get scared if i go to the not scare zone i'm safe right i can enjoy my my churro or in this movie there is no safe zone there is no part of the sound or the score that lets you know it's okay to take a bite of your popcorn it's okay to get a drink of your soda because you don't know what the fuck's waiting around that next corner there's nothing here that's going to tell you the absence of sound is so intentional in this movie because it's not just that there is zero sound. There's no score, obviously, but there is landscape sound, right? There's ambient yes. sound. You hear kind the of like winds. the sounds yeah. of the prairie and the winds blowing, which is very intentional. It's not just that there's no sound. It is structured without sound which is fascinating and immediately striking, right? That opening scene, you get Tommy Lee Jones fucking kick-ass monologue under this bed of aggressive silence with these spectacularly filmed, you know, Peckinpah-esque Roger Deakins lens opening shots of the West Texas Prairie. It is one of the most remarkable and breathtaking, you know, first five minutes of a film that you'll see. Incredible filmmaking across the board. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the cinematography because we did talk a lot about like how gorgeously this movie is filmed. And I did want to share kind of an interesting story. I'm forever impressed with how well this movie is lensed, right? And we all know Roger Deakins' king shit. And the way that it was filmed obviously was very gorgeous. I was very taken aback with how meticulously planned and executed the movie was. He was interviewed about the movie and he talked about how every single shot in the film was storyboarded. So that's the level of planning they undertook here. They use no zoom lenses, not only in this movie, but just in general throughout the Cohen's work. And after I read that interview, I did my rewatch of the movie and you see it throughout. Everything is either a static shot, a pan, or it is a, a tracking shot or a dolly. There is no Correct. zooming in and out. The audience literally moves with the camera throughout the scene, which it's kind of like enforcing a viewpoint. It's like watching the movie with blinders on, which is really, really interesting. And then obviously the end result of that was that apparently they only shot 250,000 feet of film on this movie. You know, to give you know folks some perspective on this, an average Hollywood film of this kind of scope and caliber 
is going to shoot somewhere near a million, right? So somewhere Easily. near like a 750,000 to a million feet of film. That's how intentional and vitally important the shots in this movie were that there was no film wasted in the making of this movie. It was just so crafted. Matt, anything else that stood out to you as we break down the film? Any other any other highlights you wanted to talk about from a you know scene or thematic perspective? I think we've hit all of the major themes, major set pieces. I mean, obviously, I love this movie. It's my favorite movie for a reason. There's only a few things I don't like about the movie. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Woody Harrelson's character, Carson Wells. I don't think they did a great job of inserting him. They did an amazing job of exiting him from the film. <laughs> And as much as I love Woody Harrelson, and I love Woody Harrelson, I don't know that he did a great job. I think it's tough because I have a hard time seeing Woody Harrelson as anybody other than Woody Harrelson in any movie he's in. He's Carson Wells, but he's literally just Woody Harrelson. I will give him credit for this one thing, though. I, I love the way he does deliver the line. Like, how dangerous is this guy? And, and his response is compared to what? The bubonic plague? It's tough, too, because whenever you're across from Javier Bardem in a scene, you're up against a tall order, right? And, I, and he does a decent job in that scene, so maybe it's redeeming. Yeah, it's tough. I don't know, because almost all of his shots are put up right up against the Anton Scherer shot and it's like, how can you compete, right? All right. Let me ask you something. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. Well, I know one other thing I definitely did want to talk about before we get into kind of the ending and breaking down some of those pieces was the violence in the film. You mentioned it's an incredibly dark movie. It is a brutally violent film. I think the thing that was interesting to me was, obviously we talked about how violent it is, especially in the first half of the movie. One of the things, Matt, that I was really fascinated by on the rewatch of this movie, the on-screen violence in the film declines as the movie goes on, right? We have these big, splashy, bloody sequences that happen very early in the movie. And by the end of the movie, the sequences are happening largely off-screen Screen, right? You get Carson Wells, who is dispatched in like a, a reverse shot, right? Like the camera is behind the chair. You don't even see Woody Harrelson. The firing of the, the silenced shotgun is barely even on screen, right? It's mostly Javier Bardem and the ringing telephone um, that you see in the shot. So he doesn't even get the benefit of like, we don't even see his face again. Um, same thing with Llewellyn Moss. And then depending on where you land with what happens to Carla Jean Moss, which we'll talk about here in a second, entirely off screen. And, and I don't know how you you read that i ended up reading that by the end of the the movie and like a, again on a rewatch as this movie is intentionally desensitizing me to the violence because i expect that anton chigurh is this violently brutally evil person who's meeting out what he believes is his own form of justice based on this skewed code of ethics that he adheres to. And the movie itself is telling me how desensitized I am to this violence that I don't even need to fucking see it. I know that this dude is a bad dude. He's an evil dude that's just going to kill all these fucking people senselessly in cold blood. And it doesn't need to be shown on the screen. You just know it's going to happen. Yes, it is essentially. They do such a good job of depicting how he kills people that they just have to infer that he kills somebody at the, towards the end of the movie. Like You picture it happening. Again, we'll get into the ending, but 
which leads me to another concurrent theme throughout the movie that I think is subtle and beautiful and masterfully conveyed to the audience, and that is blood. Beginning of the movie, he chokes up the deputy sheriff in the station, blood spurts out. So first shot of blood, right? Super graphic. Then we get the cow punch in the forehead. Not as bloody, but definitely violent. And then we get trails of blood. We get an injured dog. Oh, God. Brings Llewellyn Moss. That's, that's, that that's, scene never gets easier for me to watch. It's bad. I love animals. I have a dog. Seeing like as many times as they focus in on a dead dog is like so. It definitely could have done without it, but it is there for a reason. I understand that. Actually, first you get a trail of blood from the deer that he shoots. So there's the first trail of blood. He's tracking deer that he shoots. That's how he stumbles upon this uh, OK Corral scene as Della Hunt. <laughs> describes it out in the middle of the desert stumbles upon the deer blood finds the dog blood sees the injured dog goes and finds all of the blood all of the people that are dead tracks the blood of the last uh what do you say the last ombre ombre ultimo the last man standing uh tracks his blood to his body gets the money again just more and more blood trail and blood splatter we get a lot more of it when javier bardem gets him at the hotel eagle he shoots it he jumps downstairs he sees the blood trail from the guy who was supposed to be manning the desk then you get javier bardem shooting him and tracking his blood to the car uh llewellyn getting a shot shoots javier bardem and you see blood trail from javier bardem's character and sugar throughout just a subtle thing of like blood which is the most base level of any violent movie of any violent act of any violent scene is graphically given to you i mean obviously there's a guy who gets his arm shot limp from a fucking shotgun blast to a little more subtly where there's a guy begging not to be shot inside of a shower and all we see is a mirror shot of the shower curtain closing and again shout out psycho you get a blood splatter on the shower curtain but it gets less and less as the movie goes on less is more and if you do that well of a job of establishing how ridiculously scary this guy is and how what he's capable of you don't need to keep hammering that point throughout the movie Llewellyn Moss is pulled into all of this, right? He's pulled into this whole debacle because, you know, he's out hunting on the prairie. And I love that that's kind of the Coen's playing with what's going to be a theme throughout the film, which is hunter versus hunted, right? Like Llewellyn Moss starts the film as hunter. He kind of becomes hunted. He thinks of himself as hunter throughout because he's got this hubris that never really tamps yes. down throughout the course of the movie. And even hubris in the face of unspeakable evil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is what he finds himself facing in this movie. But it is certainly like this interesting play throughout the movie of it all starts with him out hunting and then it becomes this hunter versus hunted conversation. The violence in the film is is compelling. It's it, again, yeah, to your point, hits you early and then you know it's coming. And the wheels that the Coens let you spin in your own head, to your point, are probably far worse than anything we would want to see them depict. Let's talk about that ending, right? So Matt, let's just start with like the most base take on the ending. Does Anthony Anton Sugar kill Carla Jean Moss in that final sequence. It, it's left ambiguous from my perspective that it's intentional to want to help you maybe get to the conclusion that she doesn't because she's this like good character who's like thrust into chaos because of her husband, but like knows nothing about the chaos. So she's not complicit in any of the conflict that's being brought upon her. She is completely a victim of circumstance. Her mother dies of cancer. She's literally coming home from her mother's funeral. She's she didn't get any of the money none of what happened in the movie impacted her well in fact whether it was the movie or just general like cancer like everything happening to her is bad so you're hoping that she gets a win but i think it's pretty obvious 
that he kills her because there would nothing in this movie would lead you to suggest that he wouldn't number one he's not there because he doesn't want to and then he gives her a chance gives her an out we see earlier in the movie where he has a moment of reprieve with somebody that he runs into lets them pick heads or tails what's the most you ever lose on a coin toss doesn't do anything scary doesn't do anything i mean weird kind of but he's just verbally imposing on this character and he lets him live because he calls it right so he gives carla g in the option It is the best I can do. Call it. I know she was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. I ain't gonna call it. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. I got here the same way the coin did. He's wiping his feet off as he's walking out, very clearly wiping blood off. And uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. So first of all, that gas station scene, man, every time I watch it, that's one that never gets old. What time do you close? Now, now is not, now a, is not time. a time. What time, what time do you, you close? close? What time do you go to bed? Nine, usually nine, nine thirty. I can come back then. Why would you come back then? We'd be closed. That house in the back, that's where you live? Oh my God, that scene is just- He chokes on a peanut. <laughs> you, you married into it? Like what a terrible shit life you lived and you married into it? That scene to me is like I, I, I assume that that was the that was the scene that the Oscar voters watched over and over again to to vote for him for supporting actor. That or when he's on the phone, and that's probably more dialogue. But after he kills Carson, is Carson Wells there? Not in the way that you mean. And then is he another blood scene as he picks his feet up to cross his legs to avoid the trail of blood that's coming from Carson's body. Ah, so good. Sorry. But do you think he's? Do you think she's dead? Do you think he killed her? Oh, I 100% think she's dead. First of all, that that entire scene is just so incredible. And it just, it's played with such emotional half. Shout out to Kelly McDonald for her portrayal of Carla Jean Moss because she imbues so much emotion into that. The second he shows up and she talks about, you know, I knew as soon as I saw you what was in store for me. And it's like, oh, fuck. And then to your point, they have that great conversation about the coin, right? He gives her the chance to, to flip the coin. And she's the only person in the movie who rejects a coin toss off because he doesn't offer the coin toss to everybody, right? There's some people who he just believes are like, do their due. Um, the coin toss is for the people that he can't decide, right? He can't make up his mind. And so he decides to leave it to fate to see to see what's gonna happen. And I love that she immediately calls him on his bullshit. The coin has no say, it's all you. Every fucking time I watch this movie, chills in that scene and that tongue lashing that she gives Anton Chigurh there at the end. But 100%, I love Carla Jean Moss. She's definitely dead. You can tell from, yeah, the checking of the boots at the end. So yes, I definitely believe she dies. So let's talk about a couple other people's fate as we wrap this up. Matt, I'm gonna give you the chance to talk about Anton Chigurh because I know you have some strong thoughts on him. So one, just in general, what do you think happens to him at the end of the film? And then also two, I know you have some opinions about Anton Chigurh as a character. He gets away, obviously. He walks away from a scene where he wasn't, it's not like they're chasing him there anyway. They're responding to a car crash. It's not like they're looking for him specifically. He 
He's left the scene. They've obviously built earlier in the movie that he's very capable of mending himself back to health. He has the wherewithal and the ability to distract, very bombastically distract uh, a pharmacy via gas tank explosion to get what he needs out and do what he needs to do. So he survives. He goes on doing whatever he's going to do with his life, probably being hired to kill other people. Anton Sugar is a character, in my opinion, probably one of the best movie villains of all time. Maybe it's a hot take. I think there's some noteworthy other candidates. Uh, Heath Ledger's The Joker is an incredible one. Roseman Pike in Gone Girl as the wife oh, who fakes yep. her own murder. And spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Gone Girl, whether you think she's a, a villain or not, I think she can definitely... I mean, she's a villain. She she murders Neil Patrick Harris in the movie. So it, it's equal parts written and equal parts acted, which I know it's not all Javier Bardem. A lot of this is the character that he brings to life. And I think it's so well written and so well acted that it, for me, it qualifies as the best movie villain of all time. Incredible performance. I'd have to really think through kind of where he fits for me in the catalog of villains. I will definitely say that it's one of the more chilling villain performances that I've seen in a film. He's definitely in my top five at the very least. I just don't know if he's my number one. He's just such a fascinating character. He's not just like this unspeakable, endless evil. There's just this very interesting complexity and a lot of that has to do with Javier Bardem and how he played him. The last piece we got to talk about, Matt, if we're going to talk about the ending is of course the final monologue from Sheriff Bell where he shares in retirement uh, a dream he has about his father that concludes the film it's literally the very last monologue before it ends as he shares this dream with his wife it was cold and there was snow on the ground he rode past me and kept on going never said nothing going by just rode on past and he had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down when he rode past i seen he was carrying fire and a horn the way people used to do and I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it about the color of the moon and in the dream I knew that he was going on ahead he's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold and I knew that whenever I got there he'd be there Then I woke up. Matt, how do you read that as the closing moment of the film? I read it that as the character has retired and is essentially waiting to die. Like very on a very base level, his career is over and a career that he had based on the character's age well into his 60s, possibly his 70s, right? I mean, we're led to believe that Tommy Lee Jones' character, Sheriff Bell, is is well on in years, well near the end of his life. My grandpa retired six months before he passed away. So that era of people and that era of Americans specifically were under a very like, you work and then you die, that generation. So I get that vibe of just essentially, I'm retired now, I had a dream, my dad went on ahead of me, lit a fire and he's waiting for me. He's like, I don't have any hobbies, what am I, what am I gonna do, right? Like, Essentially he's like, well, I'm not a sheriff anymore, time to die. And then that's what I got out of the movie. So they don't necessarily kill Sheriff Bell at the end of the movie, but they kill his career and essentially all will he had to live. And it's so dark and so depressing. It is an aggressively dark ending to the film. It literally puts that kind of final nail into that message of no country for old men. I, I have no place here, right? In this world of, you know, all that dark and all that cold 
as Tommy Lee Jones characterizes in his recap of the dream, he feels out of place in this. All he feels he can do is to try to trudge through the darkness and trudge through the cold to find himself with his father. I definitely get that read too of like he's found himself outmatched outside of his element. He's waiting to die. I also found it this kind of interesting acknowledgement of old age. Like we all have that moment where we realize that we've either become like our parents or like the antithesis of our parents. And I think that's a part of that recognition. He's gone ahead, right? And so he's realizing I'm now that old man that my father became. And so he's lit that light in the darkness ahead of me. And that's where I'm headed. He kind of sees that future for himself. That's a slightly lighter read than he's <laughs> awaiting death in retirement, but it's, it's ultimately, I guess, the same. So obviously we talked about a lot of the key themes and messages throughout the film, right, Matt? We talked about fate and determinism, which plays kind of throughout the Coen brothers' work. Every one of their movies deals in some level with determinism, deals with the role of luck and circumstance. We talked about the coin flip um, that Anton Chigurh tries to kind of pervade. And then we talked off and on throughout about the importance or lack thereof of ethics and morality in this film. Like it really doesn't matter how good or how bad people are in this movie because bad things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people is kind of the message of this movie which makes it uniquely nihilistic in the catalog of the coen brothers the coen brothers have mocked nihilism throughout their career they parodied it incredibly directly in the big lebowski yeah. they literally make fun of nihilists in that film and yet I don't know that I would characterize it as an embrace of nihilism, but it's certainly a rejection of good triumphing over evil. Because there's none of that in this movie there's at all. Of, but like, also, <laughs> like, what's good? Outside of Carla Jean, who, in my opinion, is like the only beacon of good like even sheriff bell it was somebody who murdered somebody but essentially his arrest his testimony killed a man and whether you think that's right or wrong that's besides the point but it's just a matter of they open the movie with the archetype of a good character the sheriff putting someone to death all right right off the bat you're like all right we're thrown into this like llewellyn kills people no he doesn't kill anybody in the movie but he's also trying to hide two million dollars of drug money so that his wife doesn't have to work at walmart anymore like, he's not exactly a good guy <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up Llewellyn because Llewellyn is an interesting one in this that actually, I think, accelerates the conversation around nihilism because Llewellyn does do one nice thing and it's literally what leads to all of this, right? Because remember, he goes out to the scene where the, the Mexican shootout happened, right? And the, there's the one dude that's alive in the truck that wants water, right? He's asking agua, agua, right? And he's like, I ain't got no agua, right? But he gets water and he brings water back. He never had to go back he already had everything he needed he had the money he had gotten away clean when he comes back with the water is when his truck is discovered it's when he he makes the getaway oh, so yeah, the true, film true. is making a really interesting argument because the one and only time that Llewellyn Moss does something noble and good in this film it ultimately leads to his demise and all of these terrible things happening to these characters I don't know what that what that means the movie's trying to say <laughs> But it certainly stood out to me. The dictionary definition of nihilism. <laughs> Nothing matters. Yeah, I mean, which which is so weird because the Coens don't buy into that. They don't. But and this so book does. They I, wanted to give this book justice. So. True. That's true. And I don't, and I, again, I don't have the right answer. I don't know. Maybe, maybe this to your point, just as simple as the book is nihilistic and we want to be faithful to the book, but is weirdly stand out in its embrace of nihilism. I always figured when I got older, God would sort of come into my life somehow. And he didn't. 
I don't blame him. As far as him, I have the same opinion of me that he does. Uh, Matt, we spent a good chunk of time talking about No Country for Old Men. Fuck, what a movie. Any other additional kind of final thoughts you have? I'm sure I will, um, but we can address some of those on the recap episode that we'll do in a week. We'll definitely hear a little bit more about that next week, and we'll also look forward to hearing from some of you and your thoughts. Before we wrap up, uh, we obviously, you know, we've done a couple of fun games on the show. Felt kind of weird to do a bunch of fun games related to this very bleak, nihilistic movie, No Country for Old Men, uh, but we did want to have a little bit of fun, and so we thought it'd be a cool opportunity for us to talk a little bit about our favorite Coen Brothers movies uh, and really just talk about kind of our own personal top fives, right? Now, this will just be from a directorial perspective. The Coens have actually uh, written movies that they have not directed, uh, namely like Bridge of Spies. There's a few other ones that they've they've written that they've not directed, Crime Wave, which we, we shouted out earlier. So Matt, I'm going to go ahead and start with you. What would you say is your top five all-time Coen Brothers directorial list? Starting from one to five, in particular order, we will go No Country for Old Men, Big Lebowski, Fargo, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, Miller's Crossing. That would be my five. I like it. We're actually really close on our top fives then. And obviously the biggest distinction will be the two Coen Brothers movies we're planning to do on this show. And for me, my one and two go back and forth, but I will go with my number one is going to be The Big Lebowski. And I think the only thing that edges it out over No, no Country for Old Men is rewatchability. There's never a time where I'm not okay to rewatch The Big Lebowski, but No Country for Old Men is my very close number two. I will also take Fargo at number three and Oh Brother Where Art Thou at number four. Um, I actually think both of those movies will probably end up being covered on this pod at some point because I have a lot to say about both of those movies. Uh, my number five, I'm actually going to go with one that's a little quieter and a little more subtle, and I'm going to say Inside Lewin Davis. As always, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on our Coen Brothers Top 5 films, or what are your Coen Brothers Top 5 films? Let us know by hitting us up on social media at Whiskey Flick Pod, or call into the Whiskey Flick Hotline at 818-660-6369 to be part of the show and share your take bring this one in for a landing Matt. so first of all we'll start with our climax as always uh we want to rate our films uh from one to 99 bottles of whiskey on the wall matt what is your take on no country for old men how many bottles of whiskey are you putting on the wall for this film 99 bottles for me obviously i will also go with a very high 95 bottles i mean this is a classic it's an incredible film it's obviously it won a number of awards for a, a number of reasons all right matt let's wrap it up and talk a little bit about our soundtrack for this week ironically a movie with not a lot of music so for me matt i think this week i'm going to go with a soundtrack of a song that i thought of while watching the movie which was the johnny cash song the man comes around it's not in the movie um it's featured in a number of other suspense thrillers and horror movies because it's got that sort of foreboding for men of the apocalypse vibes. And so that definitely felt applicable. I could definitely see Anton Chigurh as being the man that comes around. Um, it's almost too on the nose, which is probably why the Coens did not use it in their film. There's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. 
Matt, any songs or any music you're thinking about this week? I don't, I don't have anything for the soundtrack this week. Matt is going with no soundtrack for a film with no soundtrack. Uh, Matt, as we close out our show, as always, we want to talk about what's living in our head rent-free. What is uh, your rant for this week, Matt? I uh, just watched Power of the Dog. I actually watched it directly after I watched No Country for Old Men. Definitely a be- an equally beautiful viewing of the West. Very much similar to the same cinematography. Much different, less climactic story, though. Um, Well, I will give a shout out to the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel that debuted on Netflix. um, That is a a direct sequel to the 1974 original. Um, And I'll give it a shout out and I can't stop thinking about it because what an absolutely awful missed opportunity. Um, The kill scenes were really interesting. It's an incredibly gory movie. Absolutely just violent, gross over the top, it's the only thing it does right. The script is garbage, the characterization is garbage, the way that they dealt with the legacy character that they brought back, Sally Hardesty is garbage, like Halloween kills for dummies, it was terrible. It absolutely pissed me off how much it just kind of ruined (laughs) what was potentially a really good movie. They had some great technical aspects and they just fucked up everything else uh, related to this movie. What are you gonna do? I'm fixing to do something dumber now, but I'm going anyways. If I don't come back, you tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead, Llewellyn. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Thanks again for joining us this week on Whiskey Flick. We'll be back in your feed next Friday with more, including your thoughts on No Country for Old Men. We can't wait to hear from you and your thoughts on this incredible film. So hit us up on social media at Whiskey Flick Pod to join our polls, share your feedback and takes, or you can call the Whiskey Flick hotline at 818-660-6369 to be part of next week's show. Matt, any final thoughts or anything else to plug before we wrap up today's show? Uh, just uh, as always, 58 West King and Taco Court Fantasy Football Podcasts. Talk about some fantasy football, talk about some betting. A lot of fun. Shout out to uh, Tony and Matt of 58 West King. Shout out to Nate for Taco Corp. Uh, You can follow and listen to both those shows. You can find the links in our show notes. As always, they are doing great stuff there, even in the football offseason. So make sure you go and give them a listen. Thanks again for tuning into this week's Whiskey Flick. We'll see you next Friday for more on No Country for Old Men. And of course, two weeks from now, we'll continue our journey through the darkness of Texas with maybe a little bit more fun with the 1974 horror classic, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Massacre. Until then, keep the whiskey flowing and the flicks going. We'll see you next time. Did I stick the landing? No, but I think you get what I'm trying to say.